Hi, this is Mark, and welcome to episode one of Nerdology. Coming up on the show today, I talk to Starburst Magazine's J.R. Southall about all things Doctor Who. Chat about Doctor Who because we're both huge fans. You probably more so. Oh, I suppose so. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got a book coming out very soon through Hearst Publishing. Yes. And you long, and who? And how long have you been working on that? Oh, just over a year. Mm. December the ninth to twenty ten. December ninth, twenty ten was uh, when I first put up the threads mm. and built the website. And that was the day I had the idea, so actually it's got a birthday. Mm-hmm. So that book, that project, will always have a birthday. So this is your baby, but there's lots of other people involved, isn't there? Right, yes, because what it is, is a compilation of people's stories about them and Doctor Who, mm-hmm. basically. It's a series of essays about what people think about, how they got into, why they like Doctor Who. And all for charity as well. So this goes to children in need, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's why the book's been delayed, actually. Mm. Because <clears throat> I think Tim Hurst, the publisher, I think his plan was to have it out... Well, his original plan was to have it out at the start of 2012, mm-hmm. which is where we are now. But then he decided to bring it forward to before Christmas. But he is waiting to get official permission from children in need to put their logo on the cover. Mm-hmm. So until they come back to him, we can't send it off to the printers. And I seem to remember from a previous conversation we had that depending on how any potential buyer might buy the book, um, there'll be different amounts going to children in need depending oh, yeah. on how they buy it. Well, if you buy it through Hearst's website, obviously 100% of your money goes to Hearst. So the cut for the charity will obviously be bigger mm-hmm. because the cut is 40% of what he gets. Yeah. So if 40% of 100% is a lot bigger than 40% of, say, 40%. Mm-hmm. So if you buy it through Amazon, or if you buy it in a bookshop, or if you buy it through Waterstones online, there's going to be a much smaller percentage for the publisher, and therefore, obviously, a much smaller percentage, again, for the charity. So if you're going to buy You and Who, go to hearstpublishing.com and buy it there. Nice plug. Excellently done. <laughs> uh, so just to cover I know you can't go into tremendous detail but what's the sort of range of different people who've contributed to the book well <clears throat> the <laughs> he won't thank me for saying this but the oldest person who has written one of the essays in this first book is uh, Des Skin right the uh, the guy he goes who, way back yeah the guy who originally set up Doctor Who Weekly which obviously now is the Doctor, Doctor Who, Who magazine, magazine yeah and the guy who set up Starburst magazine mm-hmm. as well. He wrote a he, he wrote because he is friends with or acquainted with somebody else that I know. Mm. They live quite close to each other in Brighton, I think. But uh, this fella actually saw him in the street or mm. went round and knocked on his door and said, uh, I've written something for this book, why don't you? So Deskin looked into it and said, yeah, I could do that. And he's written... Um, He's written a nice short piece with one or two anecdotes of being on the road with Tom Baker at the launch tour 
for Doctor Who Weekly back in 1979. Right, I'm sure you probably had to edit that somewhat to take out some of the... <clears throat> no, no. Everybody who wrote for it was very good, actually. Mm. I think people must have... I, I mean, it's a charity thing as well. Mm. and But the people must have realised also that, you know, with it being a Doctor Who thing, there's every chance that children might get their mitts <laughs> on copies, so... There's nothing in there that's untowards at all. Well, to be fair to Tom, I mean, that was one of the things when he was in the park, he was very aware of his kind of uh, influence on kids and I think he was very keen to... Yeah, he was never seen smoking in public, for instance, even though he was a smoker. And he did all this drinking in, you know, tucked well out of the way. Mm -hmm. Mind you, the youngest person, going back to the range Mm. in You and Who, is a six-year-old girl. Wow. Yeah, one of the... You know, there's about, I don't know, perhaps about 15% of the people who are in it Mm. are people I was already acquainted with on the internet. Mm. Because obviously with the first book, like this, you know, I put out a general call to arms on Mm. the internet. And obviously a lot of people are going to be either suspicious or ambivalent. Mm. So a lot of the people who contributed to the first one are people I was already acquainted with. Mm. Not that many though, to be fair. Mm. I thought there'd be more. Yeah. But one of the guys who I knew on the internet, his his little girl is now becoming an avid Doctor Who fan. So he just asked her if she... He told her about the book mm. and asked her if she would write something for the book just about liking Doctor Who. So she did. So that's in there. So then, is okay. it very much about their take on fandom? Or is it more... Have you got a mixture? Have you got... To be honest... It's not that much about fandom per se. Mm. There are there are things in there about you know organised fandom, mm. but mostly it's just about the individual and the television program. That relationship. Yeah, mostly about discovering it, but mm. not all of them by any means. There's um, one chap in there, a young chap, has just written a short essay about Barbara, mm. and somebody else has written a review of. Um, a Christmas Carol, which yeah. was the most recent episode when the submissions process was taking place. And other people have written other things like that. <clears throat> I'd say about half to maybe two-thirds of it is the story of how people discovered Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And about a third of it, or maybe even a half, is in a similar vein, but on different subjects. The yeah. Day I Met Colin Baker, right. for instance is one, or people's particular favourite stories or characters, Mm -hmm. or particular things that had an influence on people in their becoming a fan. There's lots of books on the market about technical aspects of the Mm programme, and there are lots of review books that go through the stories, you know, one after another, and you get the same person writing their opinion on one story after another. Mm. And, you know, by the time you're about a third of the way through those books, you can predict what they're going to say about Mm. certain stories. But what I've always found fascinating, when, particularly when you talk to people who've worked on the programme, is how did somebody like Stephen Moffat or Russell T Davis get into Doctor Who in the first place? How far back does their fandom of the series go? Because Stephen Moffat's always talking about Peter Davison years and he wrote Time Crash mm. as an homage to the Peter Davison years but then again 
since Matt Smith took over as the Doctor and Stephen Moffat took over as the showrunner, there's been a huge influence from the Peter Cushing movies. Mm. I mean, even the interior of the TARDIS is biased slightly more towards Peter Cushing than towards the actual classic series TARDIS, and especially more so, perhaps, than the Rossity Davis one was. Mm -hmm. So Stephen Moffat's got this kind of dual thing going on, Peter Davison and Peter Cushing... And you kind of, yeah, but you kind of wonder where exactly did Stephen Moffat start watching the series? Yeah. And where exactly did Stephen Moffat become a fan as opposed to a viewer? Mm. And so, what I really wanted to do, the book I really would have wanted to read, was the book in which people discovered, find out, point out the point at which they become a fan as opposed to just a viewer. And this book is like a catalogue of people's individual stories of how they became a fan as opposed to just somebody who watched Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And it's brilliant because, obviously, essentially, it's the same story told time after time throughout the book. I mean, I wouldn't advise sitting down and reading the book all (laughs) in one go. Well, it's something you can dip in and out of, isn't it? Exactly. It's better if you sort of read one, put the book down... Mm next day read a couple and yeah. enjoy it that way mm. than if you try and sit down I think I mean you could sit down and read the whole lot but better off dipped into really mm. I would say but the brilliant thing about it is although it's the same story essentially told over and over again everybody's perspective is slightly different mm. and everybody's particular points of reference are slightly different yeah. and also no matter what people's perspective or points of reference this kind of a universal theme. If somebody says their first story was the Time Warrior, mm. but the point at which they could, you know, point to and say, this is the point I became a fan, was actually the invisible enemy, you say. Mm. Well, that might be different to your own experience. Yeah. But you can superimpose those two particular stories on it from your own perspective and mm-hmm. still get the universality of the individual essays. I think it's probably one of the reasons why it's such an <clears throat> enduring programme because obviously with the history it's got there's been so many different people in the show, there's been different showrunners, different contributors. Yeah, I've always thought that the reason why Doctor Who manages to maintain the amount of interest it does is because of the people behind the scenes who've worked on it. Mm-hmm. And every time somebody new takes over, a new producer or a new script editor, or these days a new showrunner who does mm. both jobs essentially but every time you know Philip Hinchcliffe takes over from Barry Letts and Philip Hinchcliffe does Doctor Who his way mm. which is different from how Barry Letts does it and then Graham Williams comes along and does it again so Doctor Who it's constantly changing mm. but it's constantly changing because of the people who are making it yeah I mean if you look at something like Cora or EastEnders mm. No matter who's running it, it's always going to essentially be the same. The same thing, yeah. But Doctor Who is such a wide remit mm. that every time somebody takes over, and we've really seen this with Stephen Moffat mm. with his timey-wimey stories, because yeah. nobody's ever done Doctor Who as a time travel show before. Yeah. Not in the same way that he has. No, I mean, there's never... City of Death, maybe a bit. Maudrin Undead, slightly. Not really, though. Slightly, yeah. Day of the Daleks. Mm. Those are the, those are your three basic mm. examples from twenty six years of the classic series. Mm-hmm. Every time somebody takes over, they'll put their own thing in, and it'll change. 
So, I mean, the other great thing about that is, if you don't like the way the current guy's doing Doctor Who, it doesn't really matter, because in a couple of years' time, he's going to be gone, and somebody else is going to be doing it, and if you didn't like what he was doing, chances are you're going to prefer what the new guy does. And even then, you can still <clears throat> dip into the, the huge history. back catalogue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's you and who. So that's pretty much done and dusted. That's ready to come out quite soon. Yeah, it should be out sometime in January, mm. I hope. So anyone who was kind of keen to contribute, they've kind of missed the boat this time. But Oh, but the submissions process is open for the second book now. Mm. Which I tried to time to happen <laughs> after the first book was out because I knew that after the first book was out there'd be more interest. Mm. So actually there's no interest in it whatsoever <laughs> at the moment. But the submissions process is open and if you go into uh, com and find the page marked you and who too. And it's all explained there. Yeah, you can find out exactly what you need to do and... By the time the book's out, that should really start kicking off. And, um, well, if it doesn't kick off, if the book's not out too soon, I shall extend the closing date yeah. for submissions. Because otherwise I'd just be being stupid. <laughs> so you haven't missed your chance? No, if you haven't missed your chance. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> so, so that sums up you and you, but you also write for other publications as well, don't you? Starburst magazine... Which I started buying when I was, I don't know, 12 or something. And I... I didn't realise the magazine was out. Started in January of 1978. <laughs> right. Started in January of 1978, Des Skin published it, and the first three issues, I think, came out every second month, and it was completely independent. Mm. And then I believe... Marvel UK wanted Des Skin, as opposed to the magazine, yeah. to come and work for them. And in order to get Des Skin to work for Marvel, I think they bought the rights to Starburst. Right. So that he would come in and be somebody who was working in-house. Mm -hmm. So then Starburst went monthly. And I think one of the first things he did was the Hammer right. magazine, mm -hmm. stroke comic. Yeah. Which I also used to buy, but I have very vague recollections of it now. I remember there was a cartoon strip in that as well, mm. which might seem a bit odd given <laughs> the nature of the subject matter. Yeah. Not so much these days with graphic no, novels and no. things, but at the time, the hand magazine was like slightly more for kids than it was for grown-ups, which mm. is a bit odd given these were all... X certificate movies yeah. at the time. I mean, these days they wouldn't look out of place in the middle of the afternoon TV schedule. Mm. Uh, but then he, after he did Hammer, I think that was when he launched Doctor Who Weekly. Yeah. And then Starburst ran with Marvel for several years, but I think Marvel sold that before they sold Doctor Who magazine. And they sold it to a company called Visual Imagination, which carried on running it, well, I think it ran for just under 30 years, 29 years. So I'd imagine Starburst was probably still holding its own in the marketplace, but Visual Imagination went bust. And then, for about two years, there was nothing heard of it. Mm. But it turns out that Mike Royce, who runs the 
Fab Cafe in Manchester. Right. I think he used, I think he used the money he makes from Fab Cafe to sort out the copyright issues, sort out the licensing issues, the rights to Starburst. And uh, last summer, which would be probably about two and a half years since Starburst had been on the shelves, mm. he brought it back online. Yeah. I think the idea was always to get it back in the shops eventually, if they could, depending on how well it did online. Well, I assume it's been doing okay online. Well, because it's coming back. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's coming back on Valentine's Day. Uh, not to newsagents just yet. Mm-hmm. So it's a subscription-based service. Yeah, I think the idea was, because obviously this is all Mike's own money, mm. so obviously he wants to... You know, he doesn't have unlimited funds to plow in, so he um, obviously wants to get it to start paying for itself before he bites off more than he can chew. Yeah. So the idea was the first two issues back, or so, depending, were going to be by subscription only. But, and uh, I'm not sure if this is widely known yet, but I do believe that a comic shop distributor has come in and given them a distribution deal to put it into comic shops across Europe. So I don't know if that goes from the first issue Mm. or whether that comes in afterwards, but it's possible that first issue might be on sale in Portugal and Holland (laughs) in comic shops. But I mean, there's comic shops in every town now, so I'm assuming that you'll pretty much be able to buy Starburst anywhere. Mm. So that's great. I mean, I'm not a big science fiction or fantasy or horror fan. Mm. Just Doctor Who, really. So uh, I bought, when I was younger, I bought Starburst for about three or four years, Mm. regularly. And then after that, just became more of an intermittent purchaser. You know, if Doctor Who was on the cover or whatever. But, uh, you know, it was a big part of my teenage years. So it must be quite a buzz to write for it now. Well, yeah, there was an advert online, and I think this was when I'd first gone on Twitter. I think somebody that I was following on Twitter mentioned it or linked to it. It was just a simple advert, would you like to write for Starburst magazine, which is coming back online. And I didn't, I didn't imagine that anybody would say yes, but I thought, well, if I don't write in, I'll kick you myself. Know, yeah. yeah, I thought, I'll never know if I don't write in. So I did, I wrote. So at the time, you and who was going to be self-published. But I was doing it. Yeah. So that was on my CV. So I wrote to Mike Royce and I said, look, I've got this on my CV. And I also sent links to a few essays that I'd published on Gallifrey Base. Yeah. Um, one in particular. And he wrote back to me and he said, I absolutely love this essay that you've published on Gallifrey Base. Didn't say a thing about the book. <laughs> That I was putting together, which I thought would be the thing that would tip the scale, if anything did. Yeah. Said, I love this essay, I'd like you to write about Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, there's going to be several people writing about Doctor Who. Yeah. And I probably, as a complete nobody, will be right down at the bottom of the pecking order. But he also said in his email, what would you like to write? And I wrote back and said, well, you know, in an ideal world, <laughs> if I had my choice... I would do the reviews of the TV episodes. Yeah. And I'd do a regular column, so I could mm-hmm. just write about whatever I wanted to. But I thought, no, 
somebody senior to me will be the television episode writer. And if I do get a column, it'll be, you know, one of half a dozen, and it'll be the least important one. Mm. And he wrote back, and, well, he's a bit, he's a bit cagey, is mine. He's a bit like Tim Hurst. Neither of them say a lot, but when they do, it's something important. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's difficult to work out quite what they're saying, because their emails (laughs) aren't always um, filled with explanation. Well, he wrote back an email that I thought said, okay, you can have your regular column, and you can be the Doctor Who reviewer. And I thought, well, okay, that's (laughs) not what I was expecting, but that's brilliant. And as it turned out, the first one back was in May of last year. Mm -hmm. And what I did, I was a bit clever. I thought the, the series wasn't on at the time, so it must have been before May. But the Christmas special was still fairly recent. And the TV show was due back, like, in the second month. So I thought, well, okay, so a review of the Christmas special mm-hmm. won't be current. But if I write a review of the Christmas special and send it to them and they publish it, then I'll know yeah. that they're using me mm-hmm. as the Doctor Who reviewer. So I did. I wrote a review of this Christmas special that had been on six or seven weeks earlier. Send it to them. And... I, I wasn't sure if they were going to use it, but when the first issue went live and it was there, I thought, well, that was it. I was secure. You had to stop pinching yourself after a while. Yeah. But even then, you know, I always thought Starburst, coming back online, Mm. you know, you don't imagine that it's going to be back in the shops. You just think it'll be online and nobody will read it. And, you know, it'll be this online thing that you're writing for in a bit of a vacuum right? and you never get to find out really if, if people are taking any notice but obviously they are because they are bringing it back as a print publication and there's a tablet edition for the iPad as well right? which I think is going to mirror the print version mm-hmm. not exactly but in certain respects yeah and the online version will still go. So mm-hmm. there'll be features and news items online. Yeah. And reviews probably online and mm-hmm. maybe in the tablet version. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think there'll be reviews so much in the print version. Right. Because the print version's always going to run behind the internet these days, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I mean, reviews in the print edition are always going to be obsolete by yeah. the time it comes out. Mm-hmm. So I think the print version is mostly going to be features and columns. And it's going to be a mixture of retrospective stuff yeah. and current stuff. So you'll have plenty to get your teeth into. Yeah. Well, when I started writing the column, I mean, almost accidentally, something happened on the first month and I thought that would make a good feature. Mm. So I wrote a column on something retrospective and a feature on something current. And then the next month it happened again. So actually... Since Starburst's been running online, I've had a column and a feature every month. So I've actually been... <laughs> Pretty good going. Yeah, I've been writing a fair bit for it, but... That keeps you out of trouble, I suppose. And here's the great thing. You go on Twitter, and this is what Mike Royce and Chris Hayes, his assistant editor, have been doing. Mm. They've been using Twitter a lot to advertise it, to just put it about. Yeah. If you look at the marketplace... The market leaders are Doctor Who magazine, 
and SFX. Yeah. And there's also Sci-Fi Now, and those are the three main magazines in that marketplace. But Starburst now has tens of thousands more followers on Twitter than Doctor Who magazine, SFX, and Sci-Fi Now put together. So you've got a built-in audience for when it goes to print, well, potentially. That's, yeah, that's what you'd hope. Yeah. I mean, if that many people are following it on Twitter, I, I mean, even if 1% of them go out and actually physically buy a copy, mm. you're talking about 100,000 people. Yeah. So 1% is still 1,000 copies, mm. which is a good start. Yeah. And I mean, people will buy it who see it in the shops, mm-hmm. or people will buy it who like Starburst and used to buy the old one yeah. who don't follow on Twitter so you can't say how many people will buy mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. but if you've got 100,000 followers on Twitter you know every time you tweet don't forget to go to the shops and buy it mm-hmm. people are going to see the tweet so that's been brilliant mm-hmm. so you obviously now you're focusing or have been focusing on the Stephen Moffat era yes I did what I did because I started writing the reviews from uh, A Christmas Carol mm-hmm. but because Starburst had gone bust or Visual Imagination gone bust and so Starburst had gone down mm. two years earlier there were two years of Doctor Who that Starburst hadn't so you had a ready made sort of gap yeah there was a gap and so I asked I wrote to Mike I emailed him and I said look here's something for the website if you'd like it would you like me to go back and review the episodes of Doctor Who that have been on the telly since Starburst was last in print and he said yes Mm -hmm. if you go on starburst.com you can find my reviews of everything from the next Doctor up to you know where we are now yeah but yes obviously that means I've had to sit down and think about (laughs) Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who so you probably analyse this way more than a lot of even hardcore fans might have. Yeah, you probably do. I don't really think of it as analysis. When mm. I write a review, I just sit down and I think, is my opinion. Mm. If I was sitting in a pub with somebody and they said, what did you think of last night's episode? And I just, on like a Sunday morning... Like that would never morning, happen. Well, yes. <laughs> but I'll just sit down on a Sunday morning, or sometimes on a Saturday night, if I want to catch it fresh. Yeah. I have one of those memories that is crap for <laughs> names, dates, things like that. And I don't remember plot twists and things like that. Big Inspector Morse fan. <laughs> and I can enjoy the episodes time after time because I don't remember, remember. Right. who did it. Okay. So if I, I've got to write the reviews quick. Mm. So I don't have time to sit and think about what this means and what that means. I just sit down. If somebody, said to, me, if somebody said to me, what did you think of last night's Doctor Who? I sit down and that's mm-hmm. what I type. And all the... You know, all the connections I make, all the analogies I come up with, they're all the things that I was thinking as I was watching it. Now, I know from previous chats that you are quite a, a big fan of Russell T. Davis's. I'm not such a big fan of Stephen Moffat. Well, I didn't like to put it that way, but now you mention it, yeah. Although I think that's changed somewhat more Well, recently. here's the thing. When Stephen Moffat wrote for, for uh, Russell T. Davis, he was writing one story a year... Mm. And they were entirely self-contained. And he also wrote the spooky, slow-burning mm-hmm. episodes. The ones that... I mean, they are the best ones of those yeah. four years. There's yeah. no question of it. And they were also different, because most of Rusty Davis's Doctor Who was quite lively, quite comic book. Yeah. 
And a lot of the writers who would come in and do it would try and imitate his style to a certain extent. Whereas Stephen Moffat really didn't. Mm. He kind of wrote his own thing. Yeah. And his episodes really stand out. But because he was writing one story a year and he wasn't writing any of the somebody joins, somebody leaves, yeah. something big happens episodes, he was able to write the quiet stories. Mm-hmm. Now he's taken over, of course. He can't write the quiet stories anymore. He's the one who has to write the somebody joins, yeah. somebody leaves, something big happens. And in his first year, I think he made a bit of a cock-up of it. I don't think... <clears throat> I don't think he was really on top of what he wanted to do and what he wanted to say. And I think it shows through, not just in his episodes, because his episodes were actually pretty good, yeah. but in the episodes in between by the guest writers, I think you get the impression that the guest writers were floundering around a bit Mm. without much of an idea of what to do. Because with Russell C. Davis, he was absolutely on top of everything. He was almost a bit of a control freak if you read the writer's tale, his sort of Yeah, uh, but then that's a good thing. Mm. If you're running a show as opposed to just writing for it, you've got to make sure that there's... I use the word continuity, but I don't mean it in the Doctor Who continuity way. <laughs> but you've got to make sure that each series of 13 episodes flows from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And the viewers don't tune in the next week. Even though it's a show that can go anywhere and do anything, the viewers have still got to tune in week after week and still believe that even though this particular episode has taken place in, you know, Agatha Christie, England... Mm. And the following episode is taking place on a space station in 5,000 years into the future or whatever. They've still got to believe they're tuning in and watching the same show. Mm. And I think with Series 5, with Stephen Moffat, you could tune in two weeks running and not really pick up on that. Well, I've got to say my own personal take on it. Although I have enjoyed Series 6 and there have been some good standout episodes, for me... I think as a whole, I think I probably enjoyed Series 5 more. Yeah, see, a lot of people think that. But then I kind of like the sort of comic book thing that Rusty Davis did. Mm. And I also kind of like the fact that Doctor Who can be a bit mad. Yeah. And I think what Stephen Moffat's really tapped into this year, apart from the story arc, which I think was better this year mm. because it finally had some resolution anyway, but apart from the story arc, I think this year Stephen Moffat let loose a bit. Yeah, I think he first started with his finale last year, which I didn't particularly enjoy at the time. Mm. But retrospectively, I think it's actually a lot better than I first thought. Yeah, a lot more fun. I think people kind of got bogged down a bit with Stephen Moffat. Does it make any sense? Yeah, and this year, I don't think he's really bothered even trying to make it make sense. <laughs> he's just made it a lot more fun. Yeah. And I think Stephen Moffat episodes this year have been about as good fun as Doctor Who has ever been, really, to mm. be honest. So you're quite hopeful for the next uh, series? Well, as long as he doesn't do something else like the Christmas special. Mm. <clears throat> but he has said recently, I think probably in Doctor Who magazine, that next year he's going to do only single episodes. Mm. And um, I do think he did mention that he wants to keep the madness quotient up. <laughs> so you'll be happy with that? Yeah. And of course we've got the 50th anniversary coming up in 2013, so that's going to be a big year. Yeah, well, anything could happen in that year, couldn't mm. it? We've no idea what they've got planned. I mean, they don't, they've 
keep pushing back the production mm. on the series. So now Doctor Who's becoming one of these programmes, and it's not rare in television, not remotely rare, but because people are so clued in to what Doctor Who does, they don't realise that other programmes do this. Sherlock is just having its second series now, mm. but its first series wasn't 12 months ago. Its first series was 15, 16 months ago. Yeah. A lot of programmes will have a series once every 12 to 18 months mm -hmm. when they can get it in the can. And Doctor Who is, at 13 episodes, a long series. Mm -hmm. So actually, this thing where we've had series 6 split across the year and then series 7 presumably not starting the next autumn, mm. it's actually not that different from what other programmes do. No. It's just that we're not used to it with Doctor mm. Who. But having said that, that does mean that Series 7 will run into 2013. And um, whatever they do about a Series 8 or the anniversary or specials or whatever is going to be slightly behind what fans were expecting. Mm. Fans were expecting there to be a full year of episodes in 2012 yeah. and another full year in 2013. Mm. But obviously it's going to be one across the winter and into the spring of 2012-13. And then the next one will either start in the autumn of 2013 and run into the spring of 2014, or else they'll do half a series, take us up to the anniversary, and then Stephen Moffat will leave and somebody else will take over. Mm. Which is... Well, obviously I have no clue what the plans are. I think common sense dictates that Stephen Moffat will do another full year and then a half a year. Mm. And his um, quote in Doctor Who magazine about them about to start on a production run that was going to be the longest ever. Mm. And then with Matt Smith saying it was going to be a full series and then something else on top yeah. on Breakfast, which uh, people have been trying to read all sorts mm. of things into. If you ask me, it looks like Stephen Moffat will do a year and a half's worth of episodes. Yeah. Matt Smith will do a year's worth of episodes. And there'll be another Doctor, either just for six months, or else to carry on afterwards. Yeah. Or else they could do uh, what I always wanted Russell T Davis to do on his specials year, mm. and have Matt Smith stop being the Doctor in one episode, and then have a new Doctor in every episode till the anniversary, <laughs> and then carry on with the 12th Doctor afterwards. <laughs> the 15-hour rule that Russell T Davis introduced in The Christmas Invasion... <laughs> which says that if it's within the first 15 hours of a regeneration, anything can happen, means mm. you can basically get away with doing a half a dozen 60-minute episodes, each taking place in less than 15 hours in the Doctor's life, and he could regenerate at the end of each episode without losing, technically, a regeneration. I think Gallifrey Base would go into meltdown if they did that. And rightly so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> Who wouldn't want that? So obviously now we're faced with quite a, a sizable wait before we get our next fix of new Doctor Who. So much for you'll never have more than a few months to wait for mm. Doctor Who. So I don't know about you, but I'll probably be filling the gap with uh, certainly Sherlock's on at the moment. Yeah, only one more week to go on Sherlock. And mm. then that's going to be at least two years before it comes back, mm. if it does as well. And it's not going to, is it? Well, I mean, the last one's going to be the whole uh, Reichenbach fall, so... Yeah, but, I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle came back after that. True. 
True. So there's no reason they couldn't come back after mm. that. And um, the guy who plays Watson, yeah. he said he wants to come back and do a third series after he finishes filming The Hobbit, which presumably would put a third series of Sherlock into 2014. Mm. And then, like, a day after he said that, Benedict Cumberbatch it is suddenly revealed is now going to have a part in the next Star Trek movie. Yeah. So he's going to finish filming The Hobbit and go off and do Star Trek. And Noel Clark's going to be in it as well. <clears throat> in a small part. Mm-hmm. In a flashback sequence. All right. Apparently. Uh, the uh, rumour is Uhura's dad. Okay. But anyway, if Benedict Cumberbatch is doing The Hobbit and then Star Trek, he's not going to be doing Sherlock. No, not for a while anyway. So this is going to be the end of Sherlock now. And that's a bit disappointing because they've mm. not been great, have they? Um, I must admit, I'm, I haven't enjoyed these as much as the, the first three. I think the first three came out of nowhere to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. I mean, people knew who was involved in writing mm. it, but they didn't know what their take on it was going to be. And people knew that it was going to be set in the modern day, mm. but they didn't know how well that would work. Yeah. And I think that first series took a lot of people by surprise, mm. including the people who were making it. And so with the second series, the weight of expectation is not yeah. just on the viewers. Mm, it's on the production expect- team as well. Yes. And not just, is there a weight of expectation because the first series did better than anybody expected, but also because with the second series, they've chosen to do the classics. With the first series, they did three stories that nobody but aficionados would probably Holmes fans would recognise the stories fans would yeah but your average viewer wouldn't probably pick up on it so much whereas of the 9 million viewers Mm. all of a sudden you've got 8,900,000 who know Mm. the story of the Hound of the Baskervilles and so the weight of expectation has shifted again because all of a sudden they've decided to do stories that people know yeah and I I don't think it's been bad Mm. I just think it's been a letdown after those first mm, three stories. Mm. So, it doesn't seem to be a whodunit no. in this series of Sherlock anymore. <laughs> I mean, the, the Baskerville one that was on last night as mm. we record this, eventually, at the end of the story, somebody was revealed to have done it, but up until about 75 minutes into the 90 minutes, we didn't even realise that they were actually looking for somebody <laughs> to be the perpetrator of a crime. No, no. So it was a bit kind of like floundering around for 75 minutes. It seemed minutes, slightly tenuous at the end. Waiting for the plot to kick but in. It's, it's still enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> knock it. It's, you know, it's good, enjoyable fun. But Yeah, I mean, it's still a great television series. Mm. But it's not as great a television series as the first one was. Mm. No, so that's a bit of a shame. So obviously you can still dip into the back catalogue of, of Doctor Who to kind of fill that void. Rewatching the DVDs and whatnot. Mm, yeah, because um, obviously this year I think I'm right in saying it's going to be the the final year of DVD releasing releases. all the old classic ones <clears throat> before I suppose they might go back and do the more revisitations. But well, there's going to be some stories left over for 2013. I think the original, not that there's ever probably been a plan set in stone, but I certainly remember it being talked about years ago. Mm when Rusty Davis' series came on and they stepped up the uh, amount of production on the classic series DVDs. There was certainly... It was certainly said then that they were planning to finish them by 2012. Yeah. 
And then a couple of years ago, they revised that and said, no, it won't be till the anniversary. Because obviously there were problem stories, mm. what to do about the three stories of which there are missing episodes. Yeah. And what to do about the John Pertwee ones that only existed in black and white. Yeah. So production on those was always going to take it into 2013. So, most of the DVDs will be out by the end of this year. There'll be a few left hanging over for next year. And you're right, there'll be more revisitations. Mm. I mean, what a lot of people don't seem to have had click in their head is that Vengeance on Varos, which has been revisited due to pressure from the fans, Mm. was just the start of a process by which... The classic DW feed on Twitter. Yeah. The powers that be at Two Entertain, Dan Hall, behind the Doctor Who DVD range, asked the fans, what other stories would you like to see revisited? And so therefore, it stands to reason that there will be further revisitations mm-hmm. beyond Vengeance and Varos. So it's not going to stop with Vengeance and Varos. Whether they put them into boxes... Like, we're getting the revisitations now. There has been some talk of Blu-ray as well. <clears throat> I don't know if there'll be Blu-ray, to I think be more, more for storage rather than for necessary for upping the picture quality. But I don't think Dan Hall's into that, and he's the commissioning editor on the range. Mm. I think his point of view is that download is going to be the way to go forward. Mm. You know, within a short enough amount of future that by the time they came to put classic series Doctor Who out on Blu-ray it would pretty much already be obsolete not as a format but as a way of releasing Doctor Who well recently on the news wasn't there a story about Doctor Who was the number one downloaded show on the US iTunes store oh well that'll be the new series of course Mm. but there you go but that shows that you know, they'll they'll carry on with the DVDs until the range is finished because, you know, people have been collecting the DVDs and they're obviously still selling well enough. But I don't see them starting on a new format at the end of the DVD range mm. if downloads are already performing well enough that they don't need to. No. It would be ref- reformatting it all for Blu-ray, remastering everything, would be a waste of their money, mm. to be honest. Mm. So I can't see it. The only stories that would actually fit the HD format are the TV movie. Yay. <clears throat> and Spearhead, <laughs> Spearhead from, from Space. space yeah. I mean, I'd love to see Spearhead from Space, yeah. but I can't see them releasing the Blu-ray disc of one story mm. out of 160-whatever they yeah. were. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to happen. The only way I, could, I think I could really see it happening is if they want to use the capacity that's on the discs to release a collection rather than having to have multiple discs. So you might have a whole series. But on, the thing is, disc. the multiple discs has already happened. Mm. So you don't need to remaster it to save on disc space because mm. the people who are going to buy the discs have already bought the discs. Mm-hmm. They're already out. I can see there, because the discs are already mastered and it wouldn't cost to entertain anything to do it, I can see there maybe series box sets. Yeah, that's what I mean. Mm. But on DVD. Mm. I mean... DVD does not become obsolete just because Blu-ray's out. Mm. It's a five-inch format. Yeah. And Blu-ray, you know, you can play your DVDs on Blu-ray. So, and with upscaling as well in, mm. in the player. Yeah. 
So they may be box sets of the DVDs, but I can't see them remastering onto Blu-ray just to put out the box sets that they can put out for free, essentially. Mm. Of course, in the lead-up to Christmas, we had the news about the, the two previously lost episodes that have been... Recovered. Recovered, yeah. And we're waiting for the announcement about how we're going to see them. Mm. I think there's well, still a lot of work to be done yet. Yeah, I think people are expecting them. They said they would make an announcement in 2012. Mm. And I think people are expecting them to make an announcement, you know, in the first couple of weeks of 2012. Mm. Well, these decisions that are going to be sat down and thought about before they make them. Yeah. So they're not going to make an announcement yet. And I hope they don't make the wrong announcement when they do. Because if they release a one-disc Lost in Time 2 <laughs> set with just the two episodes, you know, and... The other episode of the underwater menace, and you know, the five minutes or six minutes of Galaxy Four from the other episode that exists. Could lob them all together with Sharder and make a little box set. You could do the Sharder box set's already been announced. Mm, yeah, these could be added into that box yeah. set. There's no reason why they wouldn't be, but that's already a very strange box set, mm. and that would just make it even stranger. I suppose the one thing about that is that a lot of people who've turned their noses up at the Sharder and 30 Years box set, mm-hmm. Legacy box set, mm. might actually now want to go out and yeah. buy. Yeah, good incentive. Yeah, but uh, that would also be considered by a lot of people to be too entertained, <laughs> snubbing their noses at the fans. Mm. I'd like to see Underwater Menace animated, the other two episodes. If yeah. they can animate Reign of Terror, mm. two episodes... Underwater Menace is two episodes, so it's essentially going to cost the same. I mean, we don't know if they're going to do any more. Well... I suppose it depends on how Reign of Terror goes before... But what I mean is, Reign of Terror is going to cost so much to animate, Mm. and it's going to sell so many copies, that it's going to make so much money back. Underwater Menace would cost the same, and would make a bag, roughly speaking, the same amount of money. Yeah. And so would the Moonbase, and so would the Crusade, Mm. essentially... I think when they said Reign of Terror was being used as a test case of future animations, I don't think they were talking about the Tenth Planet and the Ice Warriors because those two stories are more important and more popular than the Reign of Terror. Mm. I don't think they would have announced the Reign of Terror unless there was already work happening or at the very least planned for those two stories. Right. So I think those two stories are already not in the can, but on the way. Mm. I don't think there's any question of that. Right. I mean, there is the possibility that whatever the work that they're doing on these stories is might not go to plan, and so they don't eventually get released, which Mm -hmm. might be the reason they've not made the announcement yet. Right. But I think the test case that Reign of Terror is standing for is for other stories like the Crusade and the Moonbase. Yeah. If the Reign of Terror sells so well that it makes it stupid mm. for to entertain not to, not to animate yeah. the other stories then they would go on and do that which would probably also mean that we'll still get Doctor Who DVDs beyond mm. 2013 yeah. just filling in the gaps which presumably we'll still do anyway because the new series will presumably still get DVD releases mm. so it's not like to entertain uh, intending to not the DVD format on the head at the end of, you know, next year, 24 months' time. So I I think the end of the range in 2013, whatever time 
in 2013 it comes might not necessarily be the last time we see new old Doctor Who on DVD. Right. So let's just hope Ren and Terrace does well enough. Because I have to say, particularly the Crusade. Yeah. I'd like to see finished off that way. And of course that would give us a series two that was complete. Well, I'm surprised you'll have time to watch any classic DVDs because you'll probably be working on You and Who too. Oh yeah. Anything you know else? the You and Who books? Well, the first one obviously is the only one I've got experience of so far. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of work, yeah. but it doesn't feel like work. And as long as you have a system of doing it mm. that works, it's a lot less work than you'd probably imagine. I mean, I had 66 essays for the first one. Wow. And although I have to edit them, yeah. I don't like editing people's writing. Mm-hmm. I edit to format, you know, putting episode titles into italics and things yeah. like that. And if people have got errors, typing or spelling yeah. errors, you know, I correct those. Mm. And occasionally you'll change the odd thing where somebody got a bit overexcited and their sentence ran away with them and it runs <laughs> yeah. for two and a half paragraphs. Yeah. You know, you'll... Just changing the structure slightly. Yeah, sometimes you put those together so it reads better. Mm-hmm. When you've written something like that and you read it back yourself, you've still got the same thing going on in your head. You don't realise yourself that for somebody who's not written it, it mm-hmm. might not read back yeah. quite as well as you think it might. It, yeah. So I've changed occasionally, mm-hmm. probably only on about three or four essays, I've changed things like that. So actually, all I did was cut and paste the essays from the documents into you know, a electronic manuscript of the book, yeah. quickly went through each one, mm-hmm. take out any mistakes, and make sure it read okay. And as long as it read okay, I didn't change anything else. Mm. Because, you know, these people have sent these essays in on faith. Yeah. And I'm not going to... You know, the whole point of the book is that it's individual voices. Their story, yeah. Yeah, it's their story. Mm. Why would I change their story? Yeah, quite. So actually, you know... I get two essays in a day. Mm. I cut and paste them into the book. And as long if it's a well-written one, and when I say well-written, I mean without mistakes, yeah. without errors, it will take me 10 or 15 minutes to read through it and I'm mm. done. Yeah. <clears throat> so actually, it wasn't... It was work, but it wasn't hard work. No. And it wasn't as time-consuming as you might imagine. Certainly a lot less time-consuming than writing your own book. Mm. So you and who volume one is ready to go. Volume two, you're taking submissions at the moment. What else have you got coming up? Oh uh, well, I there are a few things with Hurst. I've got a couple of things that are not you and who that mm. are on the way, mm. possibly. Right. So you know I shan't say what they are until such time as they become definitely. Mm. And there's something else beyond that that's completely not Doctor Who related. Mm that I'm not going to say for at least another week right? until such time as it becomes a reality. Well, I don't want to go and jinx it for you. No, <laughs> so I'm not going to say what that is at all. I have heard rumours about a fanzine. I've been publishing these essays. I've done about... I did about three, four, five, maybe six of them that I put on Gallifrey Base, and I'd also written stuff on Facebook. Mm. And, you know, I have... Bits and pieces all over the internet, I suppose. And somebody wrote to me, David McGowan, who does Rassilon's Rod. Right. 
and said to me, I, I've read your essays and they're good. Have you ever thought about writing for a fanzine? Hmm. And to be honest, I hadn't. So I did. So I wrote a piece for issue three of Razalon's Rod. Hmm. And then a friend of his, Scott Burdett, came in and said, I'm starting up a fanzine as well. His is full colour. Right. So And it's printed on really nice paper. Mm-hmm. Actually, it looks a lot more like a magazine than a fanzine. Right. Because I didn't have much experience of modern fanzines. Mm. The last time I'd bought a fanzine was back in the 1980s. Or maybe in the 1990s. Mm. So I wrote a piece for Scott's first fanzine, but I wrote him a story right. as opposed to an essay. Okay. Which went down rather well. Mm-hmm. And so... He asked me if I'd write again for the second one. Mm. He also wanted essays, but obviously with Starburst and you and who, I can't really be writing regularly in the form of essays for somebody else as well. You have a full-time job as well. I just don't have that much to write about (laughs) either. So I continued writing stories for Scott. Wrote a second one for his next fanzine. And some essays that I'd written a couple of years ago that hadn't been published on Gallifrey Base or anywhere, hadn't gone up anywhere, I gave to Scott, and he used those in his fanzines, which are Bandrill, by the way. You can look it up on the internet. And Tomtit. <laughs> and uh, the third story I wrote for him, he liked so much, he took it to one of the guys who'd been drawing... well, doing artwork for the mm. features, yeah. and said... How would you like to turn this into a cartoon strip? Right. Well, the story is a bit long for a six or eight page cartoon strip for Mm. a single issue. So I think this guy came back to him and said, I could do it, but it would need to be five instalments long. Right. So he planned it out. Five instalments with cliffhangers. Each of uh, four pages. The final part would be six pages. And he came back to Scott and said, this is what I can do and here's the first couple of pages and they sent me the first couple of pages so I could see it mm-hmm. and I think all three of us came to the same conclusion at the same time at 20 pages long spread over five issues of an intermittent fanzine that mm. could be several months between yeah. you know instalments you know it could take 18 months to get yeah, the entire story yeah. out and people wouldn't be able to follow it mm. so I think what's going to happen is these 20 pages together with a cover and a back cover Mm -hmm. and something else which again I'm not going to say until Mm -hmm. unless it happens well I think the plan is now all three of us just wrote each other emails on the same day and said why don't we put it out as a graphic novel instead cool sort of a fanzine graphic completely unofficial we Mm -hmm. would buy it as a fanzine but instead of being a fanzine it'll be a graphic novel so that'll be called Let's Regenerate okay it's a homage to come pastiche of <laughs> Stephen Moffat with a view to the regeneration that he's going to have to do at some point. They were talking fan wine Kokogo. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not, my, I'm not one for continuity myself. Mm. I'm very much of the Robert Holmes school of Doctor Who. Who gives a fig what's happened before as long as the story's good? Yeah. Having said that, if you're going to write a funny story that might get changed into a cartoon strip, you know, these kind of fan-wankery things are the kind of things that you'd like to put in. Yeah. We've not talked about joking apart with chalk, but I think we can leave that for another time. Maybe another time, maybe another time. 
So, uh, all that's left to say is um, thanks very much, JR. Thanks for appearing on the first episode. You're very welcome, Mark. Now, please leave my house. <laughs> okay, I'm out of here. That just about wraps things up for this episode. Thanks again to JR for taking the time out to have a chat. And before I go, I'd just like to say a big thank you to Eric from the Doctor Who Book Club podcast and Eric from Mostly Harmless Cutaway for all their help and advice in getting this podcast up and running. So until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.